Is this working? All right. We're going to have a sign-up sheet in the back for anyone who wants Christina to come play a whole concert of violin music. (laughs) She said if we can get three people to sign up, she'll come do it. (laughs) Just love being able to play with that kind of accompaniment. A giftedness and lots of hard work and practice went into it, but a talent that is very incredible. But before we get going here this morning, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this opportunity to open it. Thank you that you made it readily available, that you had no interest in hiding your truth from us. You wanted to reveal yourself to us, and you did that in a way that now today we're blessed to have at the tip of our fingers, even on our devices, wherever we would go, we would have access to your word. If we've hidden it in our heart or memorized it, we would have it with us, of course, all of the time. But thank you that we have that truth a standard by which to gauge everything else so that as the world spews its lies at us, we can ask, does that line up with God's word? Does that measure up to the standard? Is that true? Well, I know it's not because I know what's true. And having studied what's true, I'm in a better position then to identify what's fake and phony and false. So pray that we would, as a collective group of believers gathered here this morning, continue to place a high value on your word meditating in it day and night, being encouraged and strengthened and uplifted and directed by it, placing a high value on it within our homes, and even taking time to come study it together as a part of a fellowship of other believers, a body of believers. Thank you for all those that are here that are brothers and sisters in Christ from other places as they're here from the wedding yesterday. Thank you that you consistently remind us that this is a lot bigger than any one person that you even reminded those of faith that started to get weary and to think they were the only one, you consistently reminded them, no, there's people everywhere who are calling on the name of the Lord, even in when it got to its worst, at least 70 anyway. So as we think about our nation and being reminded even that in our state we have many other believers, brothers and sisters to be praying for. We have some visiting even from, I know, Montana this morning and probably places farther than that. Just pray that we could be encouraged by getting to spend time with one another, a little bit of a glimpse of heaven as a couple of believers were talking to me about this morning. Seeing all of these people come together with a common faith in the sovereign God of the universe, knowing where our future lies, knowing what eternity looks like for us, that we have that sense of celebration even here on earth when we can come and be together. Pray that you give me wisdom as I speak this morning from Psalm 23, that what is said would be accurate and clear. Pray that it would be useful, though, to those who are here, that it wouldn't come in one ear and out the other, but there'd be some nugget, some kernel, some truth you want to convey this morning that could stick with them and that they could use in their lives. Pray for the Sunday school teachers and all of those who are laboring behind the scenes, even with the all that went into the wedding and the youth retreat and Sunday schools and the nursery and maintaining the building and keeping the building clean and all of these things that you're using people to accomplish because you work through people. Thank you again for that. Pray that you just honor even the service this morning that everything that is done would bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you can see from the screen, the title of our morning sermon is Fill My Cup, Lord. And we sang a song kind of dedicated to that theme. And I know we have a mixture of those that are just visiting here this morning, so you might be unaware that we've been going through a series on Psalm 23. We've had, I don't know, seven, eight lessons so far on Psalm 23, breaking the psalm down with its main point and then the explanatory clauses that come after that in the following verses. And so as we've been working through it, and that all started because we worked through that with our young people, and some of your young people were the ones who heard these messages, at Bible camps this summer, whether it was whatever age group it was, all three of them had the subject or the focus matter for the camp with Psalm 23. And the theme of that all comes from verse 1. 
The theme of Psalm 23 is, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Which could just simply be paraphrased, because the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. I shall not want means I lack nothing. There's nothing that I am missing out on if I'm God's child. And say that to yourself. There's nothing that I'm missing out on if I'm God's child. God has provided absolutely everything that I need. He never fails. He never forgets something. Like I started to forget Christina's solo there in Fill My Cup. Thankfully, Leah helped too, so I didn't feel as bad. (laughs) You're lacking nothing. But you're not lacking nothing because you've taken so much care to set aside everything that you would need in life. You're lacking nothing because the good shepherd has undertaken to provide everything that you need for a life of godliness, a life of abundance, a life of joy, a life of peace, a life of purpose, a life of contentment, a life of eternal value and meaning. The good shepherd undertook to do that. Your heavenly father undertook to do that. And so if you take nothing else away from Psalm 23, I hope you realize, as my grandmother did, that the focus of Psalm 23 is just found there in verse 1. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. And I think I was actually told that she didn't know that much of the rest of the psalm. That was the one that was her favorite verse, just the first verse there. But David then, why does he go on? He goes on beyond that kind of summary statement so that we would see many different examples through a couple of different illustrations as to what God's complete care for his children looks like. Complete care of children. There's three C's. All right. So he went a little further. Sometimes he does that just for the sake of repetition. You know that the book is a book of repetition. The book is a book of repetition. The Bible is a book of repetition. It's a book of repetition because we're simple-minded. The entrance of thy word gives light. It gives understanding to the who, to the simple. I'm not insulting you. God's insulting you when he says you're simple. (laughs) Because we're simple, we're stubborn, we're hard-headed, hard-hearted, God has to repeat himself over and over and over again with the hopes that perhaps this time will be the time that it sinks in for a moment. Perhaps next time it'll sink in for a little bit longer. Perhaps eventually this can become a way of thinking that characterizes the way that you see the world, that you start more and more over time as you grow in your faith and you develop a a better understanding of God's word. And as he does his work and brings about this process of spiritual growth in you, that eventually your life becomes characterized more and more by the kinds of things that characterize him, his character, his attributes. Not that you'll ever be him, but that as he wants to make you a reflection of him, he wants to transform you into the image of his son. As his spirit is working in you, as you're yielded to what the spirit of God is doing in you, then what is flowing from you is directed by God. And so if it's directed by God, it's consistent with who God is. Is. And so that's the point of repetition, that if we go through this enough, maybe we'll see that I can't do this on my own. I can't live a life that will bring God glory on my own. God is going to have to provide everything that is necessary for me to be successful. The only part that I'm going to play in it is, am I going to choose to let him do that? Am I going to direct and orient my gaze to him at any particular moment? Am I going to be looking unto him, the author and finisher of my faith? Am I going to be walking by means of the Spirit? Walking in dependence would be the idea there. Walking in dependence on the Spirit of God to do in and through me what I would never do naturally. Am I going to come to that place? Well, that's the point of the psalm as David is starting to come to that place. He's seeing that I need God to do everything that is necessary for me in order for me to thrive. I've seen it happen. I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and now I'm going to talk about it in a poetic form here in Psalm 23. So what are some of those specific examples of God's complete care that we've looked at? Well, you'll catch up quickly here if you haven't been here. He makes me to lie down in green pastures is the first one. And summary of that, he makes it possible for me to rest. 
He makes it possible for me to lie down in a place of rest. He leads me beside the still waters. He brings me to the place where I can be refreshed. Now, much as a horse can be brought to drink, you can't make it drink. A horse can be brought to water, but the horse has to decide to drink. But he makes refreshment readily available by leading me to the perfect place. Waters that are just perfect, still waters that aren't stagnant, but they're not a rushing torrential river either. They're water I can drink from, that I can find refreshment in. Then he goes on to say, he restores my soul. And we talked about how certainly there's a past tense justification aspect to being restored with God, being reconciled with God, that mankind was born associated with sinfulness, the race of Adam, estranged from God, alienated from God, enemies of God even the Bible says. And we understand that God had to make a way to deal with man's sinfulness apart from anything man could do to contribute to it. So we now, we now know, flashing forward to our day, that that ultimately took the form of a redeemer who was the savior of the world, Jesus Christ. The savior who came to be the satisfying payment or the substitutionary payment for our sin. So due to our sin, we were not in union with God. We were estranged from God. And God made a way for man, if they would just exercise faith in God's provision for their sinfulness, to deal with their sinfulness, to be restored to a place of a right standing with God. Not because man had made himself right, but because God was accepting his faith and crediting righteousness to his account so that he could be declared to be in right standing judicially, not on the basis of anything he had done. And so we talked about that in the past tense, justification by faith. How do I get a hold of that? I have to put my complete confidence in, put all of my eggs in the basket of what God has done for me to deal with my sinfulness. Now, what did he do? He died on a cross. He bore my sins on a cross. He died in my place. And he didn't just somewhat complete the work that was necessary. He completely accomplished the work that was needed. And he cried out, it is finished. So my response to God's solution to my sinfulness is to accept his gift offering of love as he died in my place by putting my trust, my confidence, my faith, being convinced or persuaded to accept and believe that he did that for me and that there's nothing more that needs to be done. So it's not just that Christ died and he took care of my sin. It's that there's nothing else I can do. There's sort of two parts to it there. It's not enough to just believe that Jesus died on the cross for sins without believing that that payment was absolutely satisfactory in dealing with the full debt that was owed. If you don't also acknowledge that there's nothing I can do to perfect or to make perfect something that already was perfect, and if you think that Christianity is mostly about Jesus Christ doing his part and then the rest of it's about you doing your part to bring the thing across the finish line by whatever you want to say, a religious ritual of some kind, staying faithful, persevering to the end, holding on to this, clinging to him tightly, never letting go of him, never turning away from him, proving the authenticity of your faith with a life that looks a certain way, checking off boxes that religion teaches, that these are boxes that must be checked off in addition to what Jesus Christ did for you. If that's your perspective, then you haven't been convinced to put all your eggs in one basket. You haven't been convinced that God's sacrifice was complete, that God's sacrifice was adequate, that the death of his only son fully satisfied the need of mankind. You haven't been fully convinced. You're partially trusting in someone else or something else besides him to save you, and that's not the gospel. The gospel is faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. Ephesians 2 says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It is not of yourself. Boy, that sounds pretty clear. That sounds pretty hard to argue against. It is not of yourself. Maybe it wasn't clear enough, so he says, it's a gift from God. A gift has to be freely given and freely received, or it's not a gift. So it's a gift from God. 
Maybe you're still not convinced. Maybe it wasn't clear enough. So he goes on to say, it's not of works again. It's not of yourself. It's a gift and it's not of works. Three different ways of saying, you can't kick in your part to what God has already done for you. Christianity is not about what you can do for Christ. It's about what Christ has done for you. And the moment you understand that, the moment you accept that, the moment you'll put your confidence in that, God says that moment you're born again, you have a new spiritual birth, you're born into my family. You now become an heir of heaven. I'm going to send my spirit to now live inside of you as a down payment on your future full inheritance in heaven. And I'll never let you go. Nothing will ever separate you from me. That's good news. That's good news of restoration. That's the restoration that needs to occur in every man, woman, and child's life if they're ever going to be in a right relationship with God or enjoy what God has planned for them in this life and has provided for them in this life. That's not what David is talking about here. Some of you are like, well, you spent a bunch of time on that. He restores my soul. He's mainly talking, he's a man of faith already. He's already put his faith in God's provision to deal with his sinfulness. So when David's talking about he restores my soul, he's talking about the complete care of the shepherd for one of his sheep. David's already using an illustration. The sheep is already a sheep of the good shepherd. And we know that the good shepherd said he gives his life for the sheep. So the sheep is already in that context here, is already put his faith in the shepherd. So now the shepherd restores my soul. What is that talking about? It's talking about second tense, Christian living. That God comes along as needed, daily, moment by moment, and he wants to restore our souls, to bring us back into a place of intimacy with him. When we're knocked to the ground, when we throw ourselves on the ground like a toddler throwing a tantrum. There's more than one way, friends, to get to the ground, right? It's not just that, that bully in life, that hard thing in life knocking you to the ground. Unfortunately, too often, the reason you're on the ground is because you're throwing a fit. You're pitching a fit like a toddler. That's true in my life. So God needs to come along and he needs to say, child, you're embarrassing yourself. That's what God says. What I say is, you're embarrassing me. Thankfully, at 11 and 13, my kids throw a fit in a different way now. But. And he says, let me help you up. The ground is filthy. The ground is hard. The ground will never satisfy. Let me help you up. Come along. Come with me. Take my hand. You can enjoy a much better life if you'll just walk with me instead of rebelling against me. Change your thinking. Change your attitude. And he restores us to a place of fellowship with him. In those moments, there's more to it than that. You're going to have to go to the website if you want to hear the rest of that. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness we looked at, which simply means he leads us in the right ways. He leads us in a straight path. God, when he's leading and directing our lives, he never directs it in a way that's inconsistent with his will, with his word, with his plan, with his purpose for our lives. God doesn't contradict himself. There's no set of circumstances, however much we want to justify it, where God is directing and leading and undertaking to bring us in a path that is contrary to his word. There's a big exclamation point after that. That's a fact. You can fight it. You can resist it. You can try to stick handle your way around it. But that is what God's word says. God is going to lead us only in the paths that are right. Now, who determines what is right? There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof is death. There's lots of ways that seem right to us. Now, how did we come to think they were right? Lots of different reasons. We come to think they're right because of our upbringing. Sometimes we come to think they're right because of other influences on us in the world around us. So as Satan and the world around us spew human viewpoint and worldly viewpoint, that worldly viewpoint is in diametrical opposition to God's viewpoint or God's truth. But if we hear enough of it for long enough and it just keeps it chipping away at us, it's not, it's not like a one fell swoop with a chainsaw across that tree trunk. It's a guy with a little hatchet and he's just chipping away, just chipping away at that trunk. 
And as the world keeps chipping away, and if they do it for long enough, and if we don't renew our mind, if we don't have that restoration that God provides where he can heal and add some new material back to where that wound was in the tree so that the next chip kind of just takes us back to where we had been, but it never keeps making progress through that trunk. But if there's never any healing, if there's never any restoration, if there's never any get my mind renewed by God's word, then slowly but surely chips fall to the ground. And as more chips fall to the ground, eventually that tree falls over. Now, that doesn't mean that a believer can ever lose their salvation. That's not what I'm talking about. When you have been born into a family, a familial relationship is permanent no matter how much estrangement there might be in that, fr- in that family. No matter how far you might stray or distance yourself from your parents. They remain your parents. You remain a part of that family. Once you are a son, you will always be a son, regardless of anything else that might happen. But as that tree falls over, what that symbolizes in my mind is what I see happen in the lives of Christians where they get to the point where they're now so jaded by all of this thinking that has permeated their minds, all of these viewpoints that have attacked their thinking, they get to the point where the tree is lying on the ground now because they have now abandoned all of it and said, well, these things that I used to believe, that I used to know, I used to accept as true, they're not compatible with the way I want to live my life now. They're not compatible with my own goals, with my own designs for life. They're not compatible with me first mentality a self-centeredness that the world promotes. They're not compatible with that. So I want nothing to do with it anymore. And I've seen that happen many times. Now, is God, are human beings capable of taking a tree that's been chopped to the ground and restoring that? Can human beings do that? Well, I haven't met one yet that can. If you can, show me afterwards. But we have a miracle-working God who never gives up on us. Even if we've gone that far, where we're to the point of denying that any of it's even true? I mean, Peter got to a point where he says, I don't even know the man. I don't even know who this guy is. And if you get to that point where you're effectively saying, I don't even know the man. I don't even care what his word says. I'm going to do me. You do you. Wow. When God hears that, He hears us promoting that, repeating that, you do you. You doing you is the problem. That's the the problem. God wants to transform you so that your mind would be like Christ's mind. He's saying, do me. Let me do me through you. That's probably a better way of saying that. But you do you is a dumpster fire. It's never gotten you anything that will satisfy in the long term. Now, do not misconstrue that. You doing you will satisfy for a moment, for a while. You'll think that that's happiness. You'll be convinced that that's real joy. You'll be convinced that that's what you've been really missing out on up until this point. Because we're so prone to deception, being deceived. But there's no lasting purpose or contentment that can be found in a life that is rebelling against God, in an attitude that is operating in opposition to him practically. If he's not working in your life, if you're not enjoying an intimate relationship with him in the moment, that is not the abundant life, friends. So we got to that long-winded. That's a surprise to you. You know, one of the things preachers do is they preach. Just beware of that. But he leads me In the paths of righteousness, the right paths, why? Now, this characterizes or this actually refers back to all of what's been said, but for his name's sake. Because that's the kind of God he is. Because that's his reputation. So, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Now, who's leading me there? Well, in the context, God is the one leading me through a dark place, a hard place, a narrow place, where I would naturally be prone to fear. Because he's leading me in the right path and the immediate context is though I'm walking through a valley of the shadow of death. So God at times when we're being led and directed by him, he takes us to places that are uncomfortable, unfamiliar. We don't like that. 
We don't want that. Our normal response to that is fear. Our normal response to that is, you can't possibly be leading me there, Lord. Look, it's dark up ahead. He says, I know, because when I lead you into the darkness, then you're really going to have to trust me. Faith is to walk in dependence on me, not by sight. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So we should be rejoicing when God decides that the right path for us is taking us into places that are dark and we can't see where he's leading. Maybe for the first time in your life, that will represent a time that you're truly trusting God and operating by faith. Because now your human vision, your human sight has been taken away. What's the only alternative then? It's to trust him. To say, Father, I'll take your hand. I'll let you lead me into the unknown, the uncomfortable, the unfamiliar, the places I would not naturally go. So when I walk through that valley, I fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. It's God's presence that gives me that calm in the face of going through that dark valley. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We talked about a rod referring to a club-like device that could be used to ward off external enemies, a staff being used as a tool that was a thin, a thin walking stick-like instrument with a crook on the end of it sometimes that would be used to guide and direct and even whack their sheep across the rump when they were getting off the path. Rescue the sheep with the crook when they had fallen into crevices nudge them in the right direction when they were starting to stray. So two different things, but they both provide comfort. One, because one provides comfort. One, the comfort of protection from God. One of them is the comfort of direction and correction from God as we need his correction. God's correction and direction in our life and his protection, they certainly should provide you with a sense of peace and comfort. Then we came to this shift in metaphor, the shift in illustration where David says, I'm going to take this from talking about what the shepherd does. You do this for me as if I'm telling or describing that to other people. Now I'm going to talk to God directly through an illustration of being a beloved guest of a loving host. So now he's talking to God directly. You, he says to God now, Yahweh, God's personal name. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemy. And we talked about how that table before me, him preparing a table, a place for us to come into his residence, to come into his home, so to speak, to come to that place of closeness with him, that in view there was his protection. You see that within the presence of my enemy. His provision, this table of bounty, everything that I need in front of me, but also his presence. I'm coming to sit down and dine with him. And then he says, as a part of that same illustration, you're going to anoint my head with oil. How many of you have been applying chapstick to your friends? We talked about this was a very soothing thing in a very dry climate. As in an arid climate, when you would come into a loving host's home, you, from your wanderings, would have had dry skin, dry scalp. So what was the solution to that? Olive oil mixed with fragrances poured over your head. We looked at some passages of the sense of gleefulness of being able to rub that oil into your beard even. To be soothed with that nourishment, that this picture of intimacy. And I was trying to struggle to find a modern day equivalent. I talked about kind of like being in Minnesota, it gets so dry in the winter. Invite people over, but when they come in, start slapping lipstick on them. Or chapstick, not lipstick. That's going to go hold down their direction. Chaps like, oh man, your lips look dry. Before we eat dinner, <laughs> you anoint my head with oil. Now, my cup runs over. Here we are. Fill my cup, Lord. We got there. My cup runs over. So as we're looking at this, we have to make a few observations. We have again this personal pronoun, my. My cup runs over. It's yet another personal and intimate reminder or reminder of the personal and intimate nature of the believer's relationship with God. The, ble- the believer positionally and experientially has this access to God that should be mind-blowing. This personal relationship with a personal and intimate God. There's a song on the radio I've been loving lately. It's, it's called God is in this story. God is never apart from me. He lives inside of me. He's with me all the time. God isn't distant and far away. 
God isn't somebody that I need to think of as somewhere in outer space. He's right with me. That's the, that's the idea here. And so you have this additional personal pronoun here. That's 24 if you're keeping track. So in five verses here, that's 24 personal pronouns. Do you think there's something God wanted to show you through this psalm? God is a personal and loving and intimate and relational God. Do you get that? It does you no good to think of God as someone who somehow, in a distant type of a way, caring for other people's need or caring for people. He's your God. He's right with you. He wants to live life with you. He wants you to involve him in your day-to-day affairs. He wants you to involve him in your thinking. He wants you to talk to him. He wants you to allow him to talk to to you through his word. He doesn't want to be a God that you fit in wherever it's convenient. He wants, you to, he wants to be the kind of God that you take with you to everything that you're doing and you involve him in your thinking in whatever it is that you're doing. Now, I'm not trying to talk about some kind of a way where you're never focused on doing your job. You're never focused on the task at hand. The, the idea is, as you go to do that task, are you taking this posture where you're leaving him in the work truck? Are you taking this posture, young people at school, that when you go to school, you're leaving God on the school bus, you'll pick him up on the drive home? Or are you taking him to school with this mentality that he's with me? He's, he's never going to leave me. I can be thinking about him. I can be praying to him as I'm walking between classes, as I'm struggling with a mathematics problem. I can say, Lord, help me with this. He's a detail-oriented God. Nothing's too small for him. Certainly nothing's too big for him, but he's certainly big enough to help you in a time of distress, even if that distress happens to be a mathematics test. Ronald Reagan said, they'll never outlaw prayer in school as long as there's mathematics exams. (laughs) So my cup. The cup refers to a host's refreshment happens to be poured into a cup but you drink a host refreshment from a cup during any meal. You normally don't bring your own cup to the meal. So there's a couple of different ways people have interpreted this. I think the interpretation doesn't need to go any farther than that. Some people have really tried to make a lot more out of the cup part of it. But in the, in the context, in the immediate context, we're talking about this abundant, celebratory type of a feast almost like meal that the loving host is putting on for his beloved guest. And in that context, you're coming into somebody's home and they've spread maybe a tent in in the context of David's day. But you're coming in to have a meal spread out in front of you, to enjoy that time out of the elements, to have your, to even be refreshed with that oil on your head, but to have your cup filled up with something to be refreshed with, something to, something to drink. And so the host provides refreshment in a cup during this meal. The abundant and generous provision of the host continue to be the focus. What I didn't like about some of, if you try to stretch that too far, is all of a sudden you're making the focus on the cup or the one who's drinking from the cup, but the focus isn't on the cup or the one drinking from the cup. It's on the host who's providing a cup that is filled with something, filled with something that is very beneficial to you and filled to the point where it's running over. That's actually the focus of this. So there are other passages that you could make a few correlations from, but I don't think it's any more complex than there's a cup that can hold refreshment during this meal and the host is the one in his generous and abundant way who wants to provide that for you. So the primary theme that we've been looking at is God's complete provision. And so you can't help but think of a correlation here. My cup runs over to, and my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. This idea that God's supply is never lacking or incomplete. So the cup is an indirect reference in a way to God himself. Since he is the one who provides all that is needed for his children to thrive as he intended. So you are my portion, my cup, we'll get to that in a second. My cup is running over. But he provided the cup and he provided what's in the cup. So he is the source of the vehicle of the refreshment, the one that makes it possible, and then he is the refreshment. 
So he's the source of the refreshment, and then he is also the refreshment that's in the cup. I hope that's not too confusing. You see it a little bit here in Psalm 16, 5. Oh, Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. So, Lord, you are my cup. You maintain my lot. It puts all the focus on God as the vehicle for the refreshment, and then the fact that God himself is the refreshment. And that refreshment is ultimately found in this relationship with him. The reason your cup is overflowing is because you walked through the door of his tent to this meal, to this lavish time of intimacy and fellowship that he was inviting you to. And when you did that, you had the opportunity to take advantage of the refreshment that he provides. Turn to John chapter 4. I want to show you an example of where Jesus talks about himself basically being the refreshment that a needy soul, a thirsty soul, is looking for. That he is the one that can refresh them. And this is Jesus doing evangelism. John chapter 4, we'll pick it up in verse 1. Most of you are familiar with this passage, but Jesus is going to have this interaction with a Samaritan woman. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples did it, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. I can't, I'm not, I can't teach this passage too in addition to not getting through what we're trying to get through. But he didn't need to go through Samaria in terms of it being the route that normally would have been taken. He needed to go there because he had a mission that he already knew about in advance because he's fully man but fully God. Verse 5, so he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, he experienced the full range of human experiences and suffering and emotion, just like we did. There's another example right there. Being wearied from his journey. Sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour, and a woman of Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? So there's a bunch there, culturally, that would have normally made that unusual. For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is very deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, meaning the water from that physical well. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will be Come in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. So here's a picture of Jesus explaining that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And that no one comes to the Father except through him. I am the door. By me, if anyone enters in, he shall be saved. He's saying, if you're thirsty... If you're wanting refreshment, come into my tent and I'm going to give you a cup that is overflowing with refreshment. Now, in this context, it's, it seems it's focused on salvation, first tent salvation, justification. Her putting her faith in Jesus Christ as the one who can quench her thirst, who can deal with her sinfulness, who can make a way for her to be rescued from the hopeless and helpless and hellbound predicament that she finds herself in and he says if you drink of the refreshment and the refreshment is me you'll never thirst again now I'll tell you what if you don't believe that you get saved at a point in time by simple faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ how would you deal with this passage this says if you have a drink you will never thirst again 
If you drink from the right source, if you put your confidence in the right source or the right object, you'll never thirst again. But wait a second. If you had to do something to earn your salvation or maintain your salvation, you would be in a perpetual state of needing to have more water to drink to restore that refreshment that was only temporary in nature and not everlasting in nature as Jesus says it is. He says it's eternal life. He says it's everlasting life. And he says it over and over again. But that's not the point I came here for. I came here for this idea that Jesus, or God himself, he is the vehicle of our refreshment. But he is the refreshment. Drink him in. Drink him in at a point in time so you can become his child. But drink him in, in the sense of him, your fellowship and intimate relationship with him. That's the thing that can give you refreshment. That's the thing that can fuel your soul. Now, one of the things that you see here is that the beloved guest of the loving host has to receive or accept the cup and the contents of that cup in order to be refreshed. He says, my cup is running over, but he has to, in order to take advantage of what's in that cup, he has to be willing to accept the cup from the loving host and drink from it. The host wants to provide refreshment for his weary guest. And a similar idea is communicated elsewhere in the Psalms right here. Psalm 116, 13. It says, I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. The human part in this is a positive volitional response to see that you have a need. That's true of justification. That's true of first tense salvation. That's true of sanctification or practical sanctification, progressive sanctification, however you want to think of it. Present tense sanctification sanctification. A decision has to be made. Am I going to take up the cup that's in front of me so that I can have that refreshment that God alone can provide? Am I going to call upon the name of the Lord when I'm in difficult places or am I going to go it alone? Am I going to do it on my own? You know, Jeremiah says, call unto me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things that thou knowest not. But what's the predicate action there? Call unto me. Reach out to me. Come to the right tent. Sit down at the right table. Pick up the right cup of refreshment that God alone can provide. You see, the Lord never forces his salvation on you. He says, I will take the cup. And that's true of past and present salvation. Now we get to runs over. My cup runs over. This is a picture of abundance. It's communicated through the visualization of a cup that is filled to the brim, and then some. I couldn't help but thinking about somebody who says, how much do you want in your cup? And you say, about half. And I say, I don't know what that means. Say when. Say when. So you start pouring. And then a hummingbird flies by. (laughs) And it's just running all over the table. That's our picture here. They might be saying when. You might be saying when. We're so foolish. God God says, I have this just abundance. I have this abundance that I want to provide for you. And we are so foolish in our flesh that we say, I don't want a cup that's overflowing. Give me a couple of drops in the bottom and we're like, (laughs) and he's like, what are you doing? The cup is filled to the brim and overflowing. That's what you should want. I'm not going to accept your desire to have only a little bit in the cup. When I fill a cup, it's going to be filled to the point where it's spilling all over the table. Your only choice isn't how much provision or blessing I'm going to put in your cup. Your only choice is are you going to drink it? Are you going to take it? Are you going to appropriate it practically into your life? You don't get to decide how much blessing the Lord has You get to only decide, am I going to apply that in my life, take advantage of it in my life? So runs over, it does a really good job of communicating God's generous blessings effectively. You're not the one filling this cup, though. You're not filling the cup. You're not filling the cup. You're not the one filling the cup. One more time. You're not the one filling the cup. 
The focus is the provision of the loving host for his beloved guest. Imagine this liquid cascading down the sides of the cup. God's blessing is generous and complete. He doesn't fill it halfway. God is rich. God is wealthy. If God is rich and wealthy, he is abundant. We have an abundant God. His abundance is reflected in his care for you. I want to flash through a bunch of verses to show you this. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. But God who is, what do we have here? He's rich. He's rich. There's no limit to his wealth, friends. God who is rich in mercy, his tender, loving kindness and compassion towards us. God is rich in mercy because of his great love. It's not a little bit of love. It's an abundance of love that he has for you and I. Because of that great love with which he loved us. It's starting to become personal. Paul's writing to these Ephesian believers. He's saying, you and I, the people I'm talking to, he loves us. God loves the world. Yes, God loves the world. It's right on the wall here. God loves us closer. God loves me. That's the thing that's going to carry you through your day. But with this great love and this rich mercy that he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses. We were estranged and alienated from him. Even when that was true, he made us alive. He made us something that we're not. We didn't make ourselves alive. He took what was dead and he made us alive as his life took up residence inside of us. I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's only because of his life living in me that I'm alive at all in a spiritual, spiritual way. Now, he made us alive not in isolation, not to be lone wolves, not to try to do this on our own. He made us alive together with Christ. With Christ. By grace you have been saved. I'm identified with Christ. I'm in him. Positionally, I'm in him. He's in me. The Spirit of Christ Himself lives in me. God's Spirit lives in me. And by grace you have been saved. So we're seeing some of this idea of the abundant and rich God and how that's going to be reflected in His care for us. So, Psalm 1611 here says, You will show me the path of life. In your presence is half full cups of joy. No, in your presence is fullness of joy, full joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. For a little while? No, forever. Philippians 4, 6 through 7 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. You see that word surpasses there? Synonym for abundance. It goes beyond. To surpass means not to come equal to. It means to go beyond. It, it surpasses all human understanding. Certainly it doesn't surpass God's understanding. But the peace and the blessings and the provision of God in our lives, it's greater than you could ever wrap your mind around. 2 Corinthians 9, 8 says, and God is able to make all grace abound. Here's another word of abundance. Abound towards you. That you always, not some of the time, always having all sufficiency in all things, we have all grace, may have an abundance for every good work. Your God does not mess up the details like you do. He doesn't forget about some parts of things. He doesn't forget about some items on the grocery list. You guys wonder why I keep bringing that up. It's a problem in my life. <laughs> you're wandering around. You're like, you come up, you're like, look at the list. It's like, okay, 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 now if I go I'll come back. I'll get it here right before I... Okay, all right, God. Get home. Where's the half and half? Now, I don't drink coffee, so you know that's why I forgot the half and half. 
If it was all about me, we'll make sure we have the string cheese. God isn't a skimpy God. He isn't a stingy God. He isn't a forgetful God. He isn't a help in some parts of your life kind of a God. He's an abundant God. We have Ephesians 3.20 here. Now to him who is able to do what? Exceedingly, abundantly, above. Sounds a lot like surpass, right? You don't come equal to. We go beyond. He's able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask. That would be awesome. But or think. That's mind-blowing. He's not just willing to do more than we can think of, he, ask about. He's willing to do more than we can even imagine or think about. According to what, though? According to the power that works in us. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. Living inside of you is God's very spirit. There is absolutely nothing that with him you cannot do. Now remember the flip of that coin though is that without him you can do nothing. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me but if you're not staying connected to the vine, if you're not abiding in me, you can do nothing. But with him we have this abundance because he is limitless. If God is limitless, everything he provides has that kind of a quality to it. We have John 10 10 here, it says, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I have come that they might have life. That would be great if that was it. But that they may have it more abundantly. My cup is running over. That's the kind of God we're dealing with. That's his character. That's his reputation. That's who he is. That's how much he cares about you. We see that here in Romans eight thirty seven. Yet in all these things, talking about all of these horrendous things that could be happening in life, yet in all those things, Paul has this confidence that we're, we're not just conquerors, we're more than conquerors. What's the power source? Through him. Why? Because he loved us. That's why he made this possible. That's why when you come into his tent and you see the table set in front of you, you have the protection from your enemies, you have the ability to enjoy his presence and have an intimate fellowship with him and he starts pouring out refreshments and they're running all over the table. That's why, because he loves us that much and he's that kind of a God. There's more you could go through, obviously. But when it, the thing I want to bring out before we... And a couple of things, but one is that when you're looking at this idea of running over, my cup runs over, there's this picture of ongoing action. I don't want you to leave here thinking that God is in the business of filling your cup to the brim, spilling some on the table, walking away. You have to, that's all you have allocated to you for the rest of your life. You know, sometimes you got that water bottle with you, you didn't plan well enough in advance, you end up on a hike or you end up doing something where it's just this one water bottle and you watch the supply dwindling, and you're really, really thirsty, but you know you can't take a full swig because then you're not going to have any left over, and you're still miles from the car, and it's 115 degrees out, and you're pushing a bike, and you got one shoe on and one sock on. <laughs> well, <laughs> this has gotten really specific all of a sudden. We were down, we were down in Utah, Went six miles from the car biking, got a flat tire, and then the spare t- tube in the pack behind the, the on the seat of the bike was had a cut in it too. So that was fun. But as I watched that water bottle dwindle, I thought, man, I hope we get to the car soon. A guy built like this isn't going to survive in this for very long. That's not the kind of God we're dealing with, though. A one-time water bottle filling God. We're talking about a God who perpetually is overflowing the believer's cup with spiritual blessings. Physical blessings, too, but the focus here is his spiritual blessings. God says he will provide all that we need. Uh, His focus is never on earthly prosperity. His focus is on setting treasures aside in heaven. So when people start talking to you about God's desire to make the focus 
on prosperity in this life. Mm, I don't know how you deal with the foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of God has no place to lay his head if mansions on earth were God's focus. I digress. So spiritual blessings, this perpetual filling of your cup with spiritual blessings. Now, the blessings themselves are perpetual, but it doesn't mean that you will appropriate those available blessings. It doesn't mean you will decide to do that. It also doesn't mean that your life will look blessed from a human perspective, from an external worldly perspective. A blessed life is not the kinds of things that people believe a blessed life looks like completely focused on physical prosperity. I touched on that in Psalm 1 last Sunday. You know, our hashtag blessed, although fun, the perfect fiancé is not hashtag blessed. That's not what God is talking about when he's thinking about the perfect diamond ring. Picture of a diamond ring, hashtag blessed. Picture of the new Ferrari, hashtag blessed. It's great. Many of those things are great. But the blessed man is the one who is focused on God's truth, focused on an intimate relationship with him. So he does not walk in the way of sinners. He doesn't, no, he does not walk in the judgment and the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. But the blessed man finds his delight in the law of the Lord. He finds his, the blessed man meditates therein day and night. The blessed man delights in the Lord. You wouldn't delight in God's law or God's word if you didn't delight in him. So delighting in him is what makes you blessed. The rest of it sometimes can represent God's blessing, and I know that's what people mean when they say some of those things. But God's not interested so much in those things as he is a heart that is soft, it's contrite, it wants to live life with him, it wants to involve him in the affairs that are going on. Now, the other thing I wanted to touch on just briefly is that the blessings and provisions that are flowing out of your cup might be different than the blessings and the provisions that are flowing out of my cup. What I mean by that is God knows exactly what each beloved guest need needs. As a loving host, but not just any loving host, a supernatural all-knowing host, when he invites somebody into his home, which he invites you perpetually into his home, come into my presence, come into my presence, come into my presence, come into my presence, come in and spend time with me. But when you come in there, he knows exactly what you need. He knew what you needed this morning. Maybe something that was said was exactly that. Maybe the nugget you needed was here this morning. Maybe you got the nugget you needed and it wasn't even said this morning. Fairly often I have people walk out and say, I love when you said this thing. And I'm like, I don't think I ever said that, but (laughs) praise the Lord that his spirit is so powerful and so big that he can minister to people even with what's not said. So just remember that. He's a personal God. So your cup is going to have what you need and it's always going to be overflowing. Now the last point I want to make is your overflowing cup should, it can and should, benefit others around you. If your cup is overflowing and you're taking that cup and being refreshed from it and the refreshment that God has put in that cup is now coursing through your body and refreshing your soul, that should benefit others around you. When your cup is overflowing with God's goodness, it spills over positively into the lives of others around you. So imagine that you make a pyramid of cups. I chose, I should have done it probably. Chaz did this at camp for the kids, something like this. But I mean, no, was it Chaz? No, it was Josh. I don't know. Some, tell me who did it later. But there was a, you know, make a pyramid of cups, stack them up, start pouring into the top cup, right? When that cup is overflowing, where is the rest of that going? It's cascading down into the other cups. You watch that, you're mesmerized by that with your ice tray, right? The water's only going into one little nodule, but then it's going into the other ones too. So if you just put the water in the middle, you don't got to do one of these things. 
it'll automatically, water finds level, so we'll talk, we'll talk some science here. <laughs> That's what happens. You spill what you're filled with. But I want to note this. You cannot be filled with his provision and power while at the same time filled with the world, human wisdom, sin, pride, or self. If you spill what you're filled with, if you filled yourself up with all of these other things besides him, how are you going to spill him into the lives of others around you? If none of him is in your life, how is it going to spill over into the adjacent lives that, have, that God has put in your sphere of influence? Even if you're being, approaching life from a me-first perspective, which is that is the definition of the flesh. The question is, when I'm being selfish about this, though, it's not just impacting me. When you are so filled up with yourself and the world and sinfulness and your, your own ideas and human viewpoint, if you're God's child, that's detrimental. That's, it's sad. It's sad that you're wasting that opportunity that could have been spent living life with him. But it's sad to you that you're doing that. But young people, when you won't make any room to be filled up with any of God in your life, any of his truth, any of his plan, how about these friends that you say you love so desperately that never get to see any of him flow through you? They never get to hear about him because you've filled yourself up with so many other things instead of him. How about your children that never get to see any of him in you Because you're not filling yourself up with him. The cup's in front of you. It's overflowing with his blessings, his goodness, his direction, his provision, his protection, his presence, his instruction, his correction. It's overflowing. He's saying, grab a hold of that. Start guzzling that down. Because as you fill up with that, it's going to positively impact others in your life. Because he's always going to fill the one that is willing and empty to be filled. And he's always going to fill you with the right things, never anything that would be harmful to you, only things that would be for your good. He's going to fill you up with the things that are directed by his spirit. The things that spill over from a spirit-directed vessel are the things God can use because they are the things he ultimately produced. God can't use a vessel that's filled up with all the things that are in opposition to him. But he can use the vessel that's filled up with the things that he's producing in the spirit-led, spirit-directed, spirit-enabled, spirit-empowered believer's life. And that's why Galatians 5.22 through 25 says, but the fruit of the spirit is, these are the kinds of things that God wants to spill out of your life. Love, love. Joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. We've been freed from the bondage to the flesh. We were given victory from the power of the sin nature when we placed our faith in Jesus Christ and his spirit took up residence in us. So now if we live by means of the spirit, we have the spirit inside of us. If we walk by means of the spirit, we have the spirit inside of us. If we let the spirit lead, then these are the kinds of things that are going to spill out of our lives as we walk about with that metaphorical cup of life. If it's filled up and overflowing and splashing over with him, those are the things that he wants and those are the things that can benefit others. Now you are the special guest of the king of kings. But you can only find God's refreshment where God is. In the right tent, the Lord's house, where he is. A guest cannot enjoy the abundant and generous provision provision and blessing of the host without coming to dinner, dining with the host, spending time with him. He has prepared a table before you in the presence of your enemies. He wants to anoint your head with oil. He's filled the cup to the point of overflowing all over the table. But you have to spend time with him. You have to go to the meal. Go take a seat at the table. You were invited to stop over all the time. The question is, will you? I pray that you remain focused on him. With a fill my cup, Lord, run it over perspective. 
Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we could have this opportunity to be reminded about your abundant and gracious provision for us. How generous you are. How you never do things part way. How you're not in the business of half full cups. You're the kind of a host that fills things to the point of full and overflowing. And as you do that with every aspect of our lives, if we would only just spend that time dining with you, fellowshipping with you, experiencing intimacy with you by choosing to orient our gaze to you, looking at you, looking at your word and communicating with you. Pray that this would have been encouraging to those who are here. Pray that we could have a nice time of fellowship afterwards. In Jesus' name, amen.